0: Hello Skywatchers, thanks for listening to the Royal Observatory's Lookup podcast. I'm Dara, and I'm going to highlight what to look for in the sky in May in this cosmic diary. So when looking at faint objects such as stars, nebulae, the Milky Way, and other galaxies, it is important to allow your eyes to adapt to the dark, so that you can achieve better night vision. You should allow 15 minutes for your eyes to become sensitive in the dark, And remember not to look at your mobile phone or any other bright device when you're stargazing. And if you do decide to use a star app on your phone, then make sure to switch on the red night vision mode. Now being firmly in the spring months, with the length of daylight hours increasing, dark skies for stargazing are becoming more limited to a few hours between the late evening and the very early morning. In fact, by the end of the month, London will no longer experience true nighttime, as the sun will not dip far enough below the horizon at night for the skies to be truly dark. From late May until late July, we will be in astronomical twilight for much of the night. But even with the limited hours for stargazing, May boasts many astronomical highlights. Throughout the month, look out for the famous star pattern the Plough or the Big Dipper, high in the south around midnight. Use an astronomical saying to find a few bright stars by following the handle of the plough to firstly, arc to Arcturus, the brightest star in the constellation of Boetes. And then from there, follow through and speed on to Spica, Virgo's brightest star. On the night of the 5th, going into the 6th of May, the Eta Aquarius annual meteor shower will reach its peak. As the Earth orbits the sun at this time of the year, It plows into the debris left by comet Halley to produce the Eta Aquarids meteor shower. And later in the year, the Earth will once again plow into the same trail of debris left by comet Halley and will produce the Orionids meteor shower in October. The best time to see this event will be after midnight. But the radiant of the Eta Aquarids meteor shower, which lies in the constellation of Aquarius, won't rise above the eastern horizon until after 3.30am. With a peak rate of roughly 50 to 60 meteors, you may be able to spot quite a few, but the light of the waxing gibbous moon in the southwest will likely hinder your view. Nevertheless, if you can find a clear view of the eastern horizon, scan the skies in that area using just your eyes. They're the best tool for the task. Now the full moon this month occurs on the 7th of May, and it will be found lying in the constellation of Libra, close to the bright red star Antares in the constellation of Scorpius. In many cultures, names are given to each full moon and they often reflect changes in nature or the seasons. Now the May full moon is often known as the full flower moon as it signifies the time of year when the temperatures start to rise and many flowers come into bloom. But this month's full moon is also the last of three supermoons in 2020, the other two having occurred in March and April. A supermoon occurs when the moon is near its closest point to the Earth in its elliptical orbit, whilst coinciding with a full or new moon. This super-full flower moon will be visible after 9.30pm when it rises in the southeast and will be visible all night until it sets in the southwest at dawn on the following morning. The apparent increase in size and brightness won't be easily perceptible, but full moons are always a treat to spot. Comet 2017 T2 pan is forecast to appear at its brightest from the Earth around the middle of May after reaching perihelion, its closest approach to the Sun, in early May. It will be well-placed close to the north celestial pole, so high above the horizon throughout the night. Now, comets are often credited for their beautiful tails, created by the Sun's radiation vaporising the comet's volatile materials and carrying the dust away with it. Reaching a predicted magnitude of 8.5 or 9, the comet won't be visible to the naked eye, but should be visible through a pair of binoculars with a faint fuzzy nebulous envelope or coma present. The Moon reaches its last quarter phase on the 14th of May and will join Jupiter, Saturn and Mars in the pre-dawn southeastern sky. All four are visible to the naked eye, but a moderate telescope with a 3 to 5 inch aperture will reveal some of their details. At the quarter phase, pointing a telescope to the Terminator on the Moon, which is the boundary between the dark and light sides, will reveal many craters much more vividly. You could also try to make out the bands on Jupiter, the rings around Saturn, and the reddish hue of Mars, with the whitish polar caps at its poles. Throughout the month, you may even want to try and spot the International Space Station. It's the largest artificial satellite in orbit around the Earth, and due to its giant reflective solar panels, it can be seen easily from the Earth, a bright point of light moving across the sky in a matter of minutes. Visit NASA to spot the station website to find out where and when to look for it. Now, if you do take any photos of the night sky, please do tweet them to us at ROG Astronomers. You may also want to check out our night sky highlights blog on our website, rmg.co.uk. But for now, it's time for our cosmic news. So hello all, welcome back to the cosmic news part of the podcast. Now, usually I'm joined by my co-host, Patricia. And this is the part of our podcast where we each choose a story that's broken in the astronomical world in the past month that we both find really interesting and want to share with you all. And then we put our stories to the test on Twitter to see which ones that you think are the most interesting and exciting ones. But as we've been continuing these last few weeks working from home, I've decided to continue the solo feat that I started Um, and that is to look at some of the most fundamental questions, to pick a new story that has broken in the last month, which links to some of the questions that we're always trying to find the answer to, and trying to get ever closer to. So for this month's story, I've chosen a scientific paper that was released a few weeks ago, and it looks into the age-old question of where did life first form on the earth? Now, There are a few different ideas as to how life may have started but since their discovery deep sea hydrothermal vents have been suggested as the birthplace of life particularly alkaline vents but we'll get into that in a short while. Even though this is now our leading theory in how life may have first formed on the earth from these hydrothermal vents not everyone is convinced. Some people simply suggest that for life to have started in the sea, the chemistry there just wouldn't have worked. It's not possible. And so there are some scientists that are looking for a land based alternative, a birthplace for life to first form on the earth. Hydrothermal vents are essentially geysers or hot springs on the ocean floor. If we break the words down, well, hydro to mean water or in water in this case. Thermal, meaning hot or the heat, and vents. These are openings for fluids to escape. You may have vents in your homes, air vents in your kitchens or your bathrooms to allow fluids like air to escape. So a hydrothermal vent is an opening on the seafloor, in the water, for fluids to escape from the inside of the earth. Now these hydrothermal vents are sometimes named black smokers. And that's because these vents are emitting geothermically heated water. Now, the Earth is a big ball of molten rock, and that's how it formed four and a half billion years ago. And it's been cooling ever since, but there is still some internal heat. There is some trapped heat in the insides of the Earth, and the Earth wants to get rid of it. Now, the Earth gets rid of its heat through volcanic activity. And on land, we see these volcanic eruptions. But underwater, they sometimes come in the form of these hydrothermal vents, these openings from which heat is allowed to escape. So these black smokers, which are other names for hydrothermal vents, they emit these geothermically heated water. Now, this water can be a few hundred degrees Celsius. And it has high levels of sulfides in them. Now, these sulfides basically precipitate when they meet the cold ocean. And when I say precipitate, I mean they basically solidify. So on contact with the cold ocean water, that fluid becomes a solid and that solid is uh, black in color. So just like when we might see the flame of a fire underwater, these sulfides that are being solidified and turning black as they venture out through the vents and are drifting up through the ocean it looks like black smoke and that hence they get their name now what these scientists have been looking at is essentially part of a growing field the field of astrobiology linking astronomy and biology together and this paper was actually uh, put together by scientists at nasa's jpl so the jet propulsion laboratory and they tried to mimic the possible ancient undersea environments with a a complicated experimental setup. But first things first, they had to mimic the features. So the first thing they had to do was try to mimic the extreme pressures found on the depths of the ocean floors. So taking ourselves maybe a kilometre under sea level, so under the sea, you would experience about a hundred times the pressure than we do here at sea level, which is an incredible amount of pressure that somehow they would have had to replicate in this experiment. They also need to replicate the fluids that are emanating or coming out of these hydrothermal vents. Now it's likely that these fluids coming out of these vents on the ocean floor would have been very rich in hydrogen. That's because seabed rock, and in particular olivine, reacts with water and produces large volumes of hydrogen. Now hydrogen-rich water is essentially alkaline. It's a chemical property of a substance, whether it's alkaline, whether it's acidic, or like water, it's neutral. So the fluid from these vents, they mimicked that as hydrogen-rich water, and that's alkaline. Now, they also had to mimic the ocean water into which these vents were releasing their fluids into. Now, the ocean water would have been seawater. And taking ourselves back four and a half billion years, the Earth was a slightly different place back then. The Earth is thought to have had an ancient atmosphere that was very rich in carbon dioxide. And that carbon dioxide also would have been dissolved into the seawater. So to mimic the ocean water in their experiment, they used water enriched with carbon dioxide. And carbon dioxide enriched seawater is a lot more acidic. So when the warm alkaline fluids from the vents, this hydrogen-rich water is mixed with the acidic seawater that which is enriched with carbon dioxide it actually creates white calcium carbonate chimneys that are one to two feet tall and these are the hydrothermal vents if you go onto google and you google search a hydrothermal vent it will look like a a mini whitish colored volcano and they're made of calcium carbonate formed from the mixing of these warm alkaline fluids the hydrogen rich water coming out of the vents mixed with the acidic carbon dioxide-enriched seawater. Now, in these environments, scientists also suggest that a few other minerals may have been formed, things like iron sulfides. So the question here is, could the hydrogen-rich alkaline water from the vents, when mixed with the acidic carbon dioxide seawater, could it react and produce organic molecules, the building blocks of nearly all life on Earth? Well, after mimicking the features, so they've got the the deep sea pressures, they've got the fluids coming out of the vents and the ocean water that it would have been mixing into, they also had to set up a very close match for the ancient environment. Now this experiment that the scientists set up is actually unique in the way that it has recreated the physical conditions of that environment. There have been other experiments in the past that have individually set up some of these different environments, but this experiment sets it up in a very unique way. What I mean is that it's not individual high-pressure chambers that they used. So it's not one high-pressure chamber of the fluid to represent the fluid coming out of the vents and another high-pressure chamber with the fluid representing the seawater. They actually replicated the physical properties of the environments to allow the way that fluids of water flowed and mixed together. And to do this, they had to create multiple chambers that would be joined together and they had to maintain high pressure within that whole system. Now, this was a really dangerous thing to do. You can imagine, as I mentioned earlier, a hundred times the air pressure that we have here at sea level. That's what they were trying to mimic in this huge setup. And if there was a crack or a leak in any of their experimental setup, it could have resulted in a giant explosion. So they actually had to install a blast shield around the whole setup. But this research is really important groundwork for the detailed studies that we want to make, perhaps, of other ocean worlds in the solar system. So there are a few moons around Saturn and Jupiter, which are believed to have subsurface oceans. So to name a few, there's Europa, um, Enceladus, perhaps even Ganymede, Jupiter's largest moon and the largest moon in the solar system. And if we really want to understand the mechanics and the dynamics of what may be happening in those subsurface oceans, we really need to get an idea of what's happening in our oceans so that we can apply that knowledge to these distant worlds. So now that we've got the experimental setup, can these mimicked conditions produce the organic molecules that we're looking for? So things like carbon atoms that are joined in loops or chains with other atoms, primarily hydrogen, to create organic molecules. Now some complex organic molecules include amino acids, and these can eventually go on to form DNA and RNA. So we've got our hydrogen from the hydrogen-rich fluids coming out of the vents. We've got some carbon from the carbon dioxide-enriched seawater. But actually, even though you've got those two components, the hydrogens and the carbons, that we actually want to link together to produce these chains or loops, these organic molecules, you can't necessarily create them just by mixing them. Take for instance uh, trying to bake a cake. You can't just put your flour and your sugar together and mix it and essentially hope that it turns into a cake. You have to provide energy and it's the same case here. So although the carbon and the hydrogen might bump into each other, you wouldn't automatically expect them to join or to react and form an organic compound. It requires energy to do so. Just like being or trying to push a ball up a hill, it's never going to get there on its own. You need to give it the energy to get up there. Now I mentioned earlier that a few other materials could form at these hydrothermal vent environments. And it has been shown that iron sulfide could form from water pulsing out through these hydrothermal vents. Now, iron sulfides are a catalyst A catalyst is basically a substance which can increase the rate of a chemical reaction happening. So um, it can make it more possible for a reaction to happen than would otherwise without this catalyst. But that catalyst isn't itself used up. It doesn't undergo any sort of chemical change. It's literally just helping to speed up or increase the rate of a reaction. So with iron sulfides present at this hydrothermal vent environment, it can provide energy. And so it lowers the amount of energy needed for the carbon and hydrogen to react together to form these organic molecules. Therefore, it increases the chance of actually being able to form organics. So we've got this complex setup, this complex experiment set up by NASA's JPL team. They've replicated the high-pressure experienced at the depths under the ocean on the seafloor. They've created a setup that allows for the fluid motion uh, to allow the mimicking of how these fluids would have mixed. They've also got hydrogen from the hydrogen-rich water that would have emanated from these vents. They've got carbon from the carbon-dioxide-enriched seawater that would have been in the ancient oceans here on Earth. They've also got this catalyst, the iron sulfides, which can help increase the chances of organics forming from the reactions of this hydrogen with the carbon. So did they find any organics being created in their experimental setup? Well, the experiment concluded that they had the formation of something called formate, which has the chemical formula HCO2, and trace amounts of methane, which has the chemical formula CH4, and these are both organic molecules. So the experiment has shown that organic molecules can be formed at these hydrothermal vents under the sea uh, on the ocean floors. But even the scientists themselves say that this is still a long way from demonstrating conclusively that life could have formed in these environments. But importantly, they do note that if we want to make this the leading theory, if we want to make the case that hydrothermal vents are the place where life first started on the Earth, then actually we need to be able to demonstrate the feasibility of every step in this process. And that's what they've tried to do here. They've tried to mimic the conditions and the environment of these hydrothermal vents on the ancient Earth, on the seafloor to try and show that it may have been possible for carbon and hydrogen, which would have been present at the time, to react and form these organic molecules. Now these results contribute to a growing understanding of the chemistry that might take place in oceans other than our own. And that's going to help us uh, interpret our findings. So I mentioned about the oceans that we believe to exist under Europa and Enceladus and perhaps other icy moons around Jupiter and Saturn. Then actually, there is another moon, Titan, Saturn's largest moon, which has an atmosphere of about 95% nitrogen, but 5% methane. Now, we know that methane is a biosignature. It could be an indication of a sign of life. Now, methane is produced biologically by living organisms and from the, deg- the degradation of uh, biological material here on Earth so that we know it comes from a biological source, but actually this experiment along with others show that there are non-biological sources as well to produce methane, such as these hydrothermal vents. So if we're gonna use methane to search for life on other worlds, we need to understand this. We need to understand that methane isn't just something that is produced By biological material, by life, it can be produced by non-living things like these hydrothermal vents. There are different sources that it can come from. So there's still no definitive answer to where life on Earth may have started, but there's definitely more evidence to support this leading theory. The idea that life first started from these hydrothermal vents under the seas in the ancient Earth. But it also opens up another question, and that is, where is the best place to search for extraterrestrial life in the solar system? Now, finding water on a planet is vitally important to proving that life exists there, or could exist there, because it acts as a solvent in which chemical reactions can happen for carbon-based life. That's why we need water, uh, Earth based or carbon based life needs water in order to be the solvent in which chemical reactions happen, allowing us to live. So we think of places like Europa and Enceladus that perhaps have subsurface oceans. Even Mars is a contender because there are signs and traces that liquid water could or perhaps in the past existed on Mars and therefore life may be present or may have been present on Mars in the past. But again, it's not just water as we've seen with Titan. Finding other biosignatures like methane could be another sign. In fact, on Titan, methane exists as a liquid. It's so cold that methane isn't a gas there, it condenses into a liquid form. Perhaps liquid methane is the solvent in which other types of life uh, need to be able to have their chemical reactions in to to survive, to exist. Maybe life started under the oceans through these hydrothermal vents here on Earth, or maybe, we don't know, there could be a place on land where life first formed here on the Earth. Maybe there's other water-based life in the solar system on these other moons or perhaps another planet that we've mentioned or maybe there's just a completely different kind of life that is um, not needing of any sort of liquid water it has a different type of uh, chemical makeup But now we just have to wait and see because we don't have conclusive answers now. We have leading theories, but there's no doubt that we'll get closer and closer and hopefully one day in the future find some evidence that will conclusively prove one or the other. I'd really like to thank the viewers that took part in our poll last month about how they think the moon formed. That was our age-old question for last month's look-up. For this month's lookup poll, which will be out on the 1st of May for a week on Twitter and our pages at ROG Astronomers, we're going to be posing the question to you of where do you think the best place to search for extraterrestrial life in the solar system is. So please do take part in our Twitter poll then thank you very much for listening uh, to our story this month i should have said and actually if you want to find more astronomy things to keep you entertained well we have a whole host of different things to look out for if you check out our website rmg.co.uk we've got learning resources we've got some animated videos answering some of the biggest questions in space we've even got other podcasts and blogs Uh, one includes our night sky highlights blog which is a written account of our cosmic diary the first part of this podcast but it also has some night sky images to help you in your stargazing so that's pretty much it from me for a look up this month thank you so much for joining us i hope you enjoyed our story and our age-old question where did life first form on the earth but for now uh, i hope you're all doing very well we'll see you next month for more look up